This is A Voice, a podcast with Dr. Gillian Kays and Jeremy Fisher. This is A Voice. Hello and welcome to This is A Voice, Series 5, Episode 4. The podcast where we get vocal about voice. And she's back. There was so much that we wanted to talk about with Tor about voice, so we brought her back for a second week. Okay, I am going to do a link to acid reflux by asking you, what about people who cough at night in their sleep and wake up coughing? Yeah, so the nocturnal cough, the true nocturnal cough that wakes somebody up. (laughs) And I differentiate between that and a cough where somebody wakes up, feels a tickle or a need to cough and then coughs. So the true nocturnal cough may be set off by a little spasm in the larynx or something that's happened to cause that cough when someone's been asleep and then it, it wakes them up. And cause of that can be acid reflux, usually laryngopharyngeal reflux that's coming up to the top of the esophagus and into the area around the larynx and the pharynx. And it can cause the vocal cords to go into slight spasm and that wakes someone up coughing. Now, how that's treated and whether we can actually prove it's reflux that's causing that cough, it's quite tricky. And the way we talk about laryngopharyngeal reflux and the way it's diagnosed, it's it's a difficult thing to diagnose. And I think it's probably a little bit overdiagnosed based on what we're looking at in the larynx. So if we look at a larynx and we think this person um, might have some laryngopharyngeal reflux, we're often saying that because we're seeing some swelling in the posterior part of the larynx, or we're seeing some inflammation between the arotenoid cartilages or some redness along the edge of the vocal cords. And that's causing, that may be causing someone persistent throat symptoms, but how can we prove by looking at the larynx that's because of reflux? It's quite a hard one. I've heard that, in fact, and I'm guessing often it's diagnosed based on experience and again, talking with the patient about what's going on for them. I've got bit of personal stuff to share, which I did warn you about, Tor, which is I first found out that I had acid reflux because what used to happen was I'd start to drop off at night when you first begin to drift off. And then I'd have this weird dry cough. And I remember saying to Jeremy, oh, I feel, have I got asthma or something? What's going on? I'd have this little cough. Then I'd drop off again. Then it would happen again. And eventually, of course, I'd go to sleep. Now, across time, what happened was that I got a, you know, a full on LPR event, which is I woke up feeling like I'd got a swarm of bees in my larynx. Mm. It's so painful when that you get this spurt of acid. And of course, you're in danger of choking. And it's really unpleasant. And that's when I first realised, oh, my goodness, I didn't know acid reflux could do that. And then I started reading about the different types of acid reflux, the lower esophageal sphincter and the upper. And would you like to talk more about that? Because many singers don't know the difference. Well, any professional voice user, Mm -hmm. to be honest. And they also have some very weird ideas about what to do about it, including things that introduce acid into the larynx because they've been told your stomach obviously isn't making enough acid, true, so therefore you need lemon juice. Mm. Interesting, yeah. (laughs) Lovely, lovely little (laughs) little rabbit hole. So 
gastroesophageal reflux is when stomach acid flows back into the esophagus, connect, which connects your mouth and your stomach. So that backwash irritates the lining of the esophagus. And that causes quite typical symptoms of heartburn, indigestion, chest pain, which is quite different sometimes to the symptoms that people get when they get reflux further up. So laryngopharyngeal reflux comes up to the top of the esophagus. Now that can be silent. So you, Gillian, it sounds like you had very clear symptoms at night, particularly. A lot of people, we, we term, call it silent reflux because it's not what people are expecting of reflux. People are thinking, oh, I don't have any heartburn or indigestion. It can't be reflux, yet they're waking up, being woken up in the night by a cough. They've got sticky throat and sticky mucus around that part in the morning and they're having to cough. Their voice is fluctuating. They're noticing a cough or having to throat clear a lot. And then they end up coming to see ENT who might have a look at the larynx and either say, oh no, it all looks absolutely fine or no, there is some inflammation. And then what do you do? Um, and it's a difficult thing. There's no sort of blanket treatment or advice that we can give that suits everyone. It has to be holistic and we have to take a really detailed history and work out what is in this person's medical history, lifestyle, even the sort of psychosocial elements of it and what could be exacerbating reflux and what other causes of inflammation or cough at night that there could be as well. So, when it comes to the treatment of LPR, or we could call it persistent, these persistent throat symptoms or perhaps some inflammation that someone's got in their larynx, lifestyle management is very important. And I'll talk through realistic modifications that people can make. So if I'm working with a singer, for example, we'd talk a lot about kind of patterns in, in sort of eating and meal times. We'll talk about when someone's eating, perhaps in relation to when they're going to bed. We'll talk about even things, diet, what they're eating that may be specifically triggering the symptoms or, you know, keeping food diaries is sometimes a vital part of that to recognize uh, the patterns between what they might eat on a, in a certain day or in the evening and then how their symptoms are. So again, it's that awareness, it's that sort of mindfulness of the sort of lifestyle issues that might be contributing to things. And then, of course, there's the medication side of things. So we know now that for the treatment of LPR or persistent throat symptoms caused by laryngopharyngeal reflux, that proton pump inhibitors, those medications that are used to suppress acid production, they don't work for persistent throat symptoms. There's some really clear evidence now that we these patients who have historically quite been quite blanketly prescribed PPIs when they've presented to primary care with such symptoms. We don't want to do that anymore. We really want to move away from that because we know they don't work for throat symptoms. So interesting, mm. Tor. I knew you weren't a fan of PPIs, but I didn't know that evidence base existed. If there are any papers or anything that you want to share with us at the end that you've, you've read. Yeah. We'll yeah, absolutely. Mm. Luckily, my laryngologist did not prescribe PPIs. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure you're going to move on to something that you can take that is in fact not a chemical. Yes, exactly. So we're moving away from, obviously, if there is a clear signs of heartburn and indigestion and gastroesophageal reflux, then PPIs are very important. But when it's throat symptoms and laryngopharyngeal reflux what works better but what's also under trial there's a randomized controlled trial 
going on as we speak or they're um, they're finding people to take part in this randomized control trial to look at the use of alginates in persistent throat symptoms. Um, this is the same team of people up in Newcastle carrying out this research and alginates form a raft over the contents of the stomach. So the most common one we'll hear about in the UK is Gaviscon Advance or Gaviscon generally, but the advanced version of Gaviscon forms a barrier for much longer than the regular Gaviscons. So if you are eating something after you've eaten or drunk something, if you put a thin layer of Gaviscon Advance over the contents of your stomach, that will prevent against that backflow or that reflux or certainly really minimize the risk of it. So it's really effective taken before bed. If you've eaten earlier in the evening, you've left few hours between going to bed, you're taking a spoonful of Gaviscon and it's protecting your esophagus and particularly your larynx against the backflow. About the Gaviscon and taking alginates like this, mm. that I didn't know, which is once you've taken it, don't eat or drink anything else. Because you reach the raft. Because then you basically yeah. you sink the raft. And, yeah. and people might think that even if they're brushing their teeth before they go to bed, they then might think, oh, they normally swallow water. But that's not the plan, is it? No. So the timing is everything. And that's another thing I'll spend time with people on. It's like if they've been on PPIs as well, pro the protopump inhibitors and Gaviscon, sometimes people are on those two things together, particularly if they've got gastroesophageal reflux and throat symptoms. And the timing of both is really crucial. And ice water is absorbed quite quickly. And if someone wakes up two hours after going to sleep and they've taken some Gaviscon two hours ago, I'll say if you're really thirsty, have a small sip of water, but just one at a time, definitely don't gulp it down. Think of anything, that barrier lasting about four hours and anything that sits on top of it could just be reflux or sink the barrier. Yeah, that's important. And it's not just about medications or alginates. I want to really make that clear because a lot of people will contact me when I talk about this and say, I don't want to take any of this. Surely there are lifestyle modifications I can make. And, and there are, you know, we've talked about some. It's again, very holistic and looking at everything to do with what you eat, but also general health, taking exercise, um, stress management, or the things that could be exacerbating the reflux. But the, an alginate is not a systemic medication. So it's not absorbed into the body. There are minimal side effects. Gaviscon Advance is a soluble fiber. So once it's done its job, it just moves through us. So it, it should create minimal problems for someone but obviously you do want to check with a pharmacist or with your doctor before you start guzzling Gaviscon that it doesn't interfere with any of your yeah. other routine medications. And what about sleeping habits because I know you've spoken about this on Instagram and things that you can do actually with your bed and yeah, so there's some evidence that by raising the head of the bed by at least six inches that you will reduce the risk of reflux. So, and again, lots of this advice should be used in conjunction with other pieces of advice as well. It's not to say that and just that will stop you from getting laryngopharyngeal reflux, but it is useful to know about. And a lot of people will say, oh, I can't do that because my partner won't sleep if one side of the bed's raised. So there's quite clever ways to and think about raising the whole mattress, the head of the mattress up. Extra pillows, if nothing else, if you can't do anything else, then perhaps an extra pillow might be helpful. But you've got to get the body tilted rather than just the head and the neck. And then you might wake up in the morning with all sorts of uh, pains and, and difficulties as well. So yeah, raising the whole head of the bed. 
We did it, didn't we? We did. Yeah. Yes. Bricks. Yes. Just put house bricks underneath. Yeah. Brilliant. And what about, because um, I'm drawing from Sue Jones, who was at the Withenshaw for 30 years, and she always recommended, if you can, sleeping on your left side. Mm-hmm. I always start off on my left side now. Of course, it, you get a bit bored when you're sleeping. Sometimes you want to move around. But it does seem to make a difference. Why is that? It's all to do with the anatomy of the stomach and where the stomach opens up into the esophagus. Mm. So if you lie on the side where above, where the acid will sit in the part of the stomach that's not near the opening into the esophagus, then you'll be better um, and, and safer um, and less likely to reflux in that position. Mm. Oh, actually, can I ask, can you talk to us, please, about pepsin and why it matters? Yeah, I'm that, I should have mentioned that before, actually. So pepsin is an enzyme that is within the stomach that we use to digest, to help us digest. These good old PPIs we were talking about, certainly they will suppress acid production, but they won't stop the pepsin. Okay, so pepsin is one of the contributors to the irritation and edema or swelling that might occur in the larynx if people have laryngopharyngeal reflux. So that's where the role of alginates comes in particularly to be very relevant at stopping the pepsin because pepsins can sit in the throat and wait for us to eat something acidic, which can then activate the pepsin. So that's why dietary modifications and things are particularly relevant as well. That was a game changer for me, finding that out from a speech and language therapist friend who sent me Jamie Kaufman's Dropping Acid book. And then I realised that, unfortunately, I'd got to stop drinking Sauvignon Blanc, which was my favourite wine, because although it tastes really sweet, it's actually the most acidic of the white wine. I was happily quaffing, you know, know a glass of that every night before my meal Mm. and introducing acid into the throat but we need the pepsin don't we because we can't digest without it yeah it's to get it up here because we've got lots of tissue there that is we don't want the pepsin digesting our larynx so the tissue is edible exactly sounds horrible but it needs acid doesn't it in order to operate yeah that's why we don't introduce acid into the throat if we've got. Yes, absolutely. Yes. So if you think about it in that sense, that every time you eat something acidic, if you're getting laryngopharyngeal reflux and pepsin is in, in the, the top part of the esophagus or up into the larynx, it could then be activated and start essentially digesting the tissue there and certainly causing irritation and these persistent throat symptoms. Yeah, and that's where carefully thinking about your diet and particular triggers and it's going to be slightly different for everyone, but it's important to have support to do that. Is there anything in timing of eating? I say to people to eat whatever their routine is, try and stick with the routine because the body is such a clock. So the body will expect food when it expects it. It will have secreted the acids and prepared all the enzymes and everything for digestion. If you don't eat when your body's expecting it, you you may be more likely to to reflux. Skipping meals for that reason, eating late at night, things like that are probably to be avoided. But so often I'm working with people where we just need to look at all those factors 
factors and work out what's realistic if someone's working late shifts or performing in the evening, then needing to eat something afterwards. We just have to try and get a balance for different individuals and work out what's important. It's very much like having your own jigsaw. You have all Mm -hmm. of these pieces and you have all of these behaviours that you do that Mm -hmm. are part of your life and you rearrange the jigsaw to make sure that you don't get certain things and you do get others. Do you know what? You've brought joy to my heart because I'm a little bit food police these days, aren't I? <laughs> once once I'd start, started to get to grips with what was going on, I actually changed my diet. I, l- I read another book called The Acid Reflux Diet, which I'll share, written by a nutritionist. First of all, what I did was I eliminated acid, for, uh, anything acidic from my diet. But you don't need to do that for very long. And then you gradually introduce more stuff. And what I found was that the timing of food was really important. And what you're saying is the body gets used to preparing itself for food at a particular time. And I think in modern life, we just completely override this. I love that piece of information. I think it's really fascinating. And I didn't know that. Yes, yes. So the idea that if you're missing meals, you're actually messing with the preparation that your body's made, let alone any nutrition that's going in. I love that. Your body clock. Fascinating. And, and of course, we work with so many performers yeah. who eat either before the show and then go and work mm-hmm. or after the show. Mm. And so I, this may not even be a question that you can answer, but is there a, a period of time after you've eaten that you should take before you go to sleep? I generally say three to four hours. Now, I don't particularly, I can't think of that being written or researched, you know, properly. You know, I don't, I can't give you a reference for that. That is, does tend to be what we recognize, what we recommend from a medical point of view. But you have to be realistic and not everyone's lifestyle is going to suit that. So I think ideally an hour, a couple of hours at least, I would say, bet- between eating, particularly yeah. a pro- good, a full proper meal. In, if I can't perf- do three hours, out comes the Gaviscon. Yeah. And in performance mm. terms, that's okay if you're in performance week. Mm. But if you're in performance and rehearsal week, that's a killer. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. yeah. It's hard, isn't it? Yeah. And also, if you think about it, Jeremy, the way that singers work, particularly with the abdominal wall, mm-hmm. it, obviously they're going to be using that abdominal wall quite a lot. So that's going to be putting pressure right on the area where we might stimulate a reflux Mm-hmm. Mm. Anyway, it, it's, it makes sense why singers mm. in particular can be picky about food. Absolutely. And when they eat, because yes. there's a lot of things that they have to deal with. We understand, friends. Yes. I mean, it's a very complex routine to have to get sorted. And then so many elements. And if something knocks off our routine for any reason, which of course it's going to, particularly for a performer where things are just right, but if they're knocked off in some way, people do worry that it's going to impact on their voice and their throat. And, yeah. and, You are actually setting up your own courses now, aren't you, to guide other SLTs who might be interested in voice? You're already a mentor. Yeah. Yeah, so I love being a mentor. I, over the past eight years, have supervised and and trained sort of generalist therapists who see some voice patients, but it's not the majority of their caseload, but they've wanted to build their skills. And I've done that on the NHS and in private practice. But last year or the year before, I thought to myself, how can I put all this experience and and knowledge of what the developing voice therapist needs 
into an online course. And of course, at that time, everyone was online, everyone was wanting and finding it easier to learn online and the flexibility that brought to people. So I ended up developing voice fit to practice, which is for a developing voice therapist, whether that's therapist at the beginning of their career or a few years down the line or anytime what they want to specialize in voice so it really covers what's essential learning and development for that first 12 months and I provide supervision within the course it's all online very flexible and ideally studied alongside a caseload with supervision so people hopefully get the most out of it yeah I mean that's one of my favorite things really is supporting people with that and we will put a link to your course. Have you got time to talk about nasal breathing? <laughs> yes. I know you're a fan. And it's sometimes, it's a bit of a moot point sometimes for singers, because of course, singers tend to need quite high lung volumes in order to sing long phrases and particularly if they need to project acoustically. We often feel actually we can't get enough air in when breathing through the nose. But recently there's been a lot of interest in nasal breathing in terms of down-regulation of the sympathetic nervous system, which let's face it, we've all needed to do over the last two and a half years. And people are very interested in it from that holistic point of view, But from your perspective as a speech and language therapist, why do you think nasal breathing is beneficial? So my interest in this has come from working with an asthma service with obviously patients with the laryngeal component to their symptoms. But a lot of these patients have breathing pattern disorders or dysfunctional breathing, whatever you want to call it. This is based on observations of someone's breathing patterns. That does include the channel which they're breathing through the mouth or the nose, but it also talks about and observes things like, where's the air going? Is it apical or thoracic or is it diaphragmatic? It looks at the speed with w- at which someone's breathing. It looks at whether it's audible or silent as it should be. And it looks at the rhythm or whether someone's breathing patterns are erratic. So there's lots that goes into breathing patterns and there's a lot of reasons why they can be knocked off. But it made me really aware of my own breathing. It made me really aware of just generally other people's and what how people are breathing and why. And when we're born, we're breathing completely spontaneously, automatically, beautiful involvement with the abdominals and the diaphragm. It's quiet and it's slow. It's through the nose usually. And like with other things in life, posture and whatnot, life has a huge impact on how we do these bodily functions. So breathing is an essential part of voice, obviously, and an essential part of the of how and why the upper airway functions. Nose breathing, if we isolate that for a minute, the nose is how we should breathe. The nose is designed for breathing. I say to people, nose for breathing, mouth for eating <laughs> or talking. The nose keeps the air warm. It keeps it wet. And it allows for the production of nitric oxide in the parasinuses, which helps for the absorption of oxygen and for using the oxygen more efficiently. Um, so there's lots of benefits of nose breathing. And it's difficult. I see lots of people who will say, I just can't do it. I can't nose breathe. It doesn't feel comfortable. I can't do it when I'm talking. I can't do it at rest. I certainly can't do it when I'm exercising. And I say to people, it will feel strange. It will feel really strange if you're not used to it. 
but with practice and with educating people on the benefits of it, it's really worth persevering with. That's very interesting. Uh, since reading some of your Instagram posts, I have started noticing that sometimes if I'm just walking up to the shops around here and I'm speeding along, I tend to breathe through my mouth. I actually think I got into a pattern of doing that because I developed a heart arrhythmia um, about three years ago. So I thought, okay, I'll just try breathing through my nose every so often while I'm doing the walk. And actually, I found I could do it. And uh, so I'm very curious about it. I've also invested in some of those tapes around the mouth, which are recommended by, actually, they're recommended for asthma people, aren't they? But I found that's very helpful at night so that I don't breathe through my mouth at night, less snoring. Yeah. Uh, so I just think it's very interesting. You're not only about the nitrous oxide, but you're talking really about the patterning of nasal breathing. I'm going to, I'm not going to gently disagree, but it's I am, you, I am going it? to do mm. a contextual thing because it's only in fairly recent years that I've been able to nose breathe. I have very narrow passages, so I just literally can't get enough mm. oxygen in. But that's changed over You're the sharing years. Sharing a lot of information on this podcast. <laughs> when I was scared, 20 years ago, there was only one of the country that was wide enough to take the camera. So I really do have those narrow passages. But nice. the contextual thing that I want to talk about is actually actually the act of singing. And the reason why I want to talk about it is because of the breathing patterns for singing in general, mm. which is very fast intake in a very short space of time and then long ex exhale, mm. as it were, when you're singing. And it's almost any singing style, that interrupted pattern of standard breathing is there. So you breathe in very fast and then you use the breath for medium phrases or long phrases or very long phrases. Well, it's also about sustaining the subglottal pressure for particular pitches, isn't it? And so I'm perfectly happy with the idea that you can, in real life, nasal breathe, but mm. I'm, I just don't get that you could do that when you're singing pretty much anything. Mm. Um, partly because I'm noisy if I breathe in nasally uh, at speed. And I can't afford to do that as a mm. singer. I just don't get enough in. So not that I'm suggesting that everybody takes deep breaths all the time when they sing. They don't need to. Mm. Mm. But it is interesting. That's the one area that I would say that does not work for me. But yeah. the nasal breathing in general life, yes, absolutely. Mm. Yeah. No, I completely get your point. And I think the majority of people when they're singing, will probably breathe in through the mouth. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. That's not going to turn everyone into mouth breathers at rest and chronic mouth breathers at night, for example. It's You can be both. You can use your mouth to, when breathing in when you're singing, but you can also be a, a healthy nasal breather at rest. I think it's, I feel quite strongly that it's important to say that because we are mm so much now bombarded with you must, you must, you must, you must. And there's mm. a whole list of mm. you musts. And then you're trying to live your life with these you musts. Yeah, and particularly yeah. on social media posts who are being advocated to do this and yeah. that. And people pick things up. But I'm going to say from my point of view that it was it's an interesting exercise for me to breathe through my nose while I'm walking along. I wouldn't do it if I was running or probably wouldn't do it if I was mowing the lawn or anything like that. But I just noticed I'd fallen into this other pattern and I thought, hang on a minute, I don't think I really need to mm. do this. Mm. I agree with that. Yeah, and so it's another one of those, you can intervene with that pattern. You don't have to get caught up in it. Yes. Mm. Yes. Yeah, so I work very closely with the physiotherapists who work 
really with breathing pattern disorders and a lot of our work now crosses over particularly with the respiratory services in the NHS and that we look you know again really holistically at the whole body and what the whole body's doing when we're breathing and when we're exercising mm-hmm. and how we can just optimize breathing patterns then we're never going to breathe perfectly all the time you know whenever mm-hmm. uh, you know things so many factors lots of variables but there's lots of benefits for health for voice so what's coming up for you yeah because, what's in yes, the future because there's a change in your life mm. isn't there coming up right yeah. now or very soon tell us yeah about. there is a change so I've worked in the NHS for 15 years I think around that and I've decided for various reasons that I'm just going to take a little break which is a huge sort of sacrifice in many respects I come saying goodbye to a, a job that I absolutely love in in the NHS but I may be back but I'm just decided what's best for me at this minute is to take a break and I'm going to focus on building my private practice and do more teaching and training and work on these on developing these courses for voice and upper airway therapists so yeah I'm excited it's it's going to be different more I'll need more discipline to work under my own steam and keep that going but (laughs) world of the freelancer so how can we find you how can we contact you what's your social media what are your handles so I'm at voicefit uk on twitter and instagram and facebook so yes i'm a big fan of social media and instagram particularly for making a mate like i met you guys on instagram for networking for meeting amazing people in in this profession and the world of voice what's your website um voicefit.co.uk excellent it's easy it's just all about voicefit uk yeah tor it's been a pleasure yes Thank Very you much so, so much for coming. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I've loved it. <laughs> Everything that Tora has been describing, we'll have a huge list of show notes that people mm-hmm. can find all of those links. Mm-hmm. So thank you, Tor. It's been thank a pleasure. Thank you. This is a voice a podcast with Dr Gillian Kays and Jeremy Fisher.